welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about immigration and the recent SCOTUS determination 5-4 against President Trump's attempts to repeal DACA. And joining me today to discuss these things, we have Reverend Daniel Parham, who is the Assistant Director of Undergraduate Retention and Success at Biola University. How's it going, Daniel? It's going pretty well. How are you doing, John? Yeah, you know, doing good. It's a rainy day here in Minneapolis, but all is well. And joining us as well to discuss this, we have John Garcia, who is a PhD student in religion at USC. How's it going, John? Hey, it's great. We're actually sunny in Southern California. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Oh, man, I'm jealous. Well, let's go ahead and, and, and discuss what happened last week with the SCOTUS decision 5-4. John Roberts wrote the report against the attempt to repeal DACA. Can we just briefly describe for our listeners what happened last week and sort of begin to discuss some of the significance of it? Yeah, so it was interesting. Like Trump's trying to double down on some of his claims to go back on some of the executive orders or the SCOTUS decisions from like the past. And as this has come the process, he tried to repeal the DACA ruling, and it was kind of like a revise and submit type of thing, which brings up a larger question as to whether or not this will be something that Trump will try to do again. Yeah, in a nutshell, I mean, I think this is a good ruling that was upheld. I think that this is proper for these dreamers, if you will. And I think it's something that needs to be upheld if we're going to continuing to move forward and to care for our immigrants and undocumented people. Right. Yeah, I, I watched the uh, Trump rally over the weekend, and um, when he brought it up, and he, you know, he basically described it as paperwork. You know, he said mm -hmm. that you know more or less that the reason why it didn't go through is because of bureaucracy, right? And mm -hmm. he basically said that he would try again. I, I forget the wording, but it sounds like he's attempting to try again. I wonder with November on the horizon, whether you think that what he means is he's going to try beforehand or he's going to perhaps sort of leverage it as a, as a sort of, you know, second term thing, you know, if reelected, this is sort of my agenda. Do you have any kind of thoughts about whether it's like, you know, politically advantageous, for example, for him to try and do this before November? Trump is an interesting guy, right? Because in some ways, the things that come out of his mouth are things that a sixth grader says. But yeah. in other ways, he's really strategic. And so mm. it's not a coincidence that he is using the language, for instance, against COVID of if this being a war, because mm. now he can be a president at war. And right. that's a badge of honor to his constituents that he's appealing to. And so I think you bring up a great point when you mention it's unclear whether this will be something that happens before November or after November. I could see it going both ways, because if it happens before November, he appeals to his people and say, you see what I did for you. But if it's mm -hmm. to happen post November, this is a bidding, if you will, that will happen just like the wall and other things if mm -hmm. they vote for him. And so it's, it feels very businessy. It feels very manipulative. But it's also not against his track record of kind of the promises he makes and the things that he desires to do. I can see that one going both ways, actually. Well, let's talk about how the immigration policies sort of fit within a, a larger scope of nationalism. And in particular, the, the nationalism that we're talking about here in the United States, of course, there does seem to be a, a broader recoil throughout the world with various sort of nationalisms 
representing themselves. Uh, you know, Brexit, for example, seems to sort of be the British equivalent of some of these kind of like very strong anti-immigration sort of policies. Can we talk further about contextually, you know, certain societal impulses that are kind of creating this sort of broader international nationalisms, so to speak? Yeah, man, that's a good point. I'm, I'm looking through a book called American Covenant. It's by a sociologist, such a guy does religion, Phil Gorski. Uh, he says this, I actually wrote it down because I thought it was going to be appropriate for our time here. He says, one of the most dangerous forms of collective pride is, he says, modern religious nationalisms. He's talking in conversation with Niebuhr. He says the things that makes it so dangerous is that it, it conjoins different forms of collective pride, spiritual, national, race, class, and it's armed with the power of the modern state. Nation, nation is easily combined with religion because of their shared aura of the sacred. The masses are easily mobilized because, quote, the man in the street with lust for power and prestige is thwarted by its own limitations and the necessity of social life. And then he goes on to say this, and this is in conversation with Niebuhr again. Nationalisms are not merely idolatrous, but demonic. Not mm. only in the theological sense that they involve the evasion and possession of the self, by a racial and national spirit that makes pretensions of divinity, but also in the material sense that they can unleash apocalyptic forms of death and destruction. Mm -hmm. it's just, I mean, it's just powerful, right? Because we see that happening right now. Even the, the constructive theology to say that there is a possession of sorts that is happening with our nationalism, even in Christian circles and the tribalism that, that happens, it so clearly blinds them from Christian mandates to receive and to love foreigners. And that conversation just cannot even happen, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, John, I, I think I think such a striking point in the sense of like nationalism has trumped the responsibility to the foreigner, right? And yeah. in the context of the church, particularly the evangelical church. And it's it's a struggle because it also is, a, I think, an underlying current of even if there was a proper view of nationalism, a nationalism that's viewed in somewhat of a whitewashed lens, right? So, the voices and, and narratives that you see regarding this are typically in our majority white culture against you know immigration, albeit the, the, the conversation of documented immigration or undocumented immigration. But yeah, to what you're saying is like the nationalistic, I think, fire that has been ablaze over the past few years is troublesome. Some of the unstated presuppositions, if you will, about nationalism, perhaps they're Pretty, pretty late on these days, is like this idea that when people come to the United States that they forsake their culture and their identity. And that's just, that's just not true. That's, uh, that just shows a little bit of ignorance with respect to the literature. The literature shows that there are different types of immigrants, but that all immigrants retain some form of identity, heritage, culture from their countries, whether it's in the form of remittance, whether it's in the form of continually visiting, whether it's in the form of just coming here on a work visa, so there seems to be this form of American exceptionalism, if you will, that blinds people to thinking, well, you came here, you obviously must love it. When oftentimes people find themselves coming here because they find themselves in such dire circumstances that it's a life or death matter, so they have to come here. And I'm not saying the United States is a terrible place, but what I am saying is that there are aspects of their culture and heritage that get diminished when they come into a space like the United States. And I, I just, that's difficult for me to, to stomach as a person that understands the world through a cosmopolitan worldview. 
I, I see a shared humanity much more than I do the borders that actually separate us. Mm-hmm. And from a theological perspective, I think there's, there's an epistemology that binds us through the covenant. We find in Genesis that we are made in God's image. And that has profound theological significance to what it means to love other people that are different than us. Right. Right. And as a society, you know, we talk about things like human rights. And of course, that's a that's a pretty Western thing. It's not a distinctly American thing. You know, it, it very much fits a liberal lower lowercase L, you know, sort of approach you know, democracy, freedom, these sorts of things. And the rights of humans is is something that is pretty, you know, embedded in the way that we think and talk and do policy and these sorts of things. And it's amazing because it sort of seems like with a lot of this nationalism, it's like, well, it's it's the rights of humans born in this country, right? Or it's the rights of humans born in this country to parents who are American, you know, or, you know, these human rights sort of stop at the border almost. And it's sort of this kind of weird speaking out of both sides of the mouth, it seems. Uh, how, how, can, how can we have a high view of human rights and yet such a disregard for human life at times with the way we talk about, for example, immigration? Yeah, man, it's wild. There's such a disconnect in terms of how we understand people as human persons and what that means with respect to their ties to nationalism. Uh, Daniel Carroll's done a lot of good work in this area. Yeah. A few years back, and he actually has a brand new one coming out. But I sat in recently on a, a little book seminar that he was doing where he was talking about the new book, which will be accessible to the layperson talks about immigration from a biblical perspective and it's kind of a a companion if you will to his first one which is called christian at the borders but one of the things that i love that that dr carroll unpacks in that book is he talks about daniel and how when daniel enters into a foreign land uh, they take lots of things from him but the one thing that he stands firm on is his diet Mm. how interesting that something so innate to his culture is something that he decides to keep so I think maybe that gives us a clue, as Carol would say, as to what it means to retain part of your heritage when there are clashing forms of intersectionality, if you will, between where you find yourself and where you come from and things like that. And I just think that, I mean, that is something we've got to be thinking deeply about with respect to human rights, for sure, but with respect to what it means to be a Christian and a good person. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, of course, there was another major SCOTUS determination last week, 6-3, against LGBT discrimination. Can we talk a little bit about that decision and sort of, you know, some implications that it might have, especially thinking about these two SCOTUS determinations side by side? At the risk of sounding like a ruthless self-promoter, I posted this recently on social media. I said, I told everybody, I hate to tell you. I hate to say I told you so, but I did two years ago, and I linked them to a blog that I had written two years ago where I begged people not to sell their souls for a conservative justice, quote unquote, because mm. one, that'll fail you, and two, is that really worth it? That feels highly pragmatic. That doesn't feel theologically informed. It feels pragmatically informed. And right. here we are two years later, and at least in the in the eyes of certain conservatives, they've just lost two major battles, and, and I think the call or the question, if you will, again, is, was it worth it to lose your witness, to sacrifice mm-hmm. everything in the eye of the public for the SCOTUS seats that you got that actually are not even helping in the first place, at least according to the conservative position? And so I think that with respect to the new decision, 
I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. It's a complicated decision because on one level, even personally, I would say like, yes, we should not be discriminating against people that hold different beliefs than us. If we're going to live in a pluralistic society the way Kuiper would have us live in, then we're going to have to live in points of liberalism and tension, and that has to be okay. I think the more dangerous thing, though, is precedent that that sets on two levels. One, the decisions that SCOTUS has the power to make. And two, it's, it sets a, a difficult uh, a precedent for religious organizations, universities, adoption agencies, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, there are a lot of ripple effects from this. And of course, one way that conservatives might look at this is they might, you know, say that maybe, oh, this was a failed project, right? The idea of, you know, voting for Trump with the hopes of a conservative, uh, you know, some conservative justices being put on the court. Uh, of course, probably very few would think that way. Most likely, the the majority will think we have to re-elect Trump so now we can get even more justices so that, you know, once DACA comes rolling around again, if that's, you know, for example, the way that Trump sort of holds off, let's say, um, or or other issues down the road, we'll have even more conservative justices. And then, you know, then we'll finally be able to to take care of this. So what are some thoughts running through your guys' heads as you think about that sort of pitch? There's this immersion of right a conservatism and moralism, right? And and I think this is a challenge that I think we see today is where um, many who vote within the conservative base see that the moral authority lies within like conservative officials. And I'm like, I, I I don't quite understand how we go from moral authority to conservatism as if conservatism is the moral authority. Mm-hmm. And and I think the challenge is too is that there's there is this belief that one system is almost a, a, almost perfect to the fault to a fault that you can put an imperfect person within it and it will still work in your favor. Mm. I mean that's that's the rise of Trump. Like there were people that believe that regardless of the man's moral character or moral authority, by the sheer fact that he's in the conservative way will right. afford us benefits that Obviously, we're looking at now a little bit more complicated than a straight solution of conservative appointees equals conservative principles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it, it comes back to this, this kind of unilateral but faulty belief that conservatism is, is morality at its best. Mm. Uh, and that's, I think, dangerous and, and very much problematic. One of the interesting things that I've thought about, and I, I haven't read too much on this, but it's, there's probably literature on it. Uh, I'm curious about, so you have a lot of people that are fighting to retain power in the courts or in, in democracy, so to speak. And, and I'm tempted, at least anecdotally, to say that uh, that is primarily a white thing. Hmm. Because Blacks, Latinos, I would even say Asians, have never found the courts to be their friend. We have never found the justice system to be something that we enact change through. That is why the Black church is a beacon of hope in the local community. That is why the Latino church harbors and provides sanctuaries for immigrants. Because we have always done justice and theology well, apart from the government shenanigans that have not particularly been friendly to our people group. So I find Mm. it just rather interesting that there is a voice, either a liberal voice or an uber conservative voice that is fighting or change through the court systems. And I'm not saying that we should be agnostic about 
politics and all that, but I am saying that the local church has always done change at the local level far better than big government has done. And it's interesting, John, I think, uh, John Garcia, I think too, like it's uh, the thing that comes to my mind is like the pseudo manifest destiny that the people mm-hmm. embodied into politics. I'm like, where, where do you come up with the equation that the divine will will be manifested through imperfect systems? And I'm like, that, that doesn't work. And the reality is like, if, if you can't see that being the avenue of change through the church, which I think you, you so brilliantly said, John, like people of color have always seen the church as, as the, the beacon of reform. Like mm-hmm. you know, we, we see the, the manifest power of the church to make social change. But this comes back to what you said, John, I think, and kind of the Western white evangelical framework social change can't be fused into moral change they're actually like exclusive from one another and mm. so you have to you have to drive your change through another form in order to actually fit that equation and it, it's really hard to do it it's something so simple but I, at least in my mind it is but it's become very complex because one can't see those as symbiotic they're, they're just mutually exclusive yeah, so there's a book by, uh, by a guy named Wallace Best, Passionately Human, No Less Divine. And what it is, is the case study from 1915 to the early 1950s, where he talks about migration from the South to the North, but particularly migration with Blacks from the South to the North. And it's super interesting to see the, bli- the plight that Black people experience, even the racism that Black people experience from other Blacks in the North. But one of the interesting things that Wallace Best points us to, and I think this is very relevant to what Daniel was saying, is that Wallace Best says that the reason the Black church sees no disconnect between social actions and the courthouse, so to speak, or the church, is because it was built into the DNA when they were birthed. And so when there was mass migration from the South to the North in the early 1900s, Black churches that actually received the migrants survived, and Black churches that didn't died. And as the Black churches were receiving in mass large quantities of, of, of Black people from the South, they were receiving some and, and educated Blacks, they were receiving Blacks with families, Blacks that didn't have jobs or food. And so there was just a very practical need that if churches were going to receive these Blacks from the South, they were going to have to care for them and protect them and feed them and clothe them, just very mm-hmm. practical things. And so they created these social networks to help these Blacks and like like uh, denominations like the AME did a very good job at that. There was two factions actually, one did and one didn't. But because that was baked into the early culture of the Black church, they saw no disconnect between the work that they were doing and the work that was serving the community in the local church. And I wonder if that disconnect is part of why white Christians, in particular white evangelicals, struggle so much to see how justice or how care for the poor or the needy or the immigrant is something that is so intrinsically tied to what it means to be a Christian, because maybe their history was never tied to that type of DNA, so to speak. Well, can we maybe talk talk about some of the obstacles or barriers or, or you know, the kinds of arguments that might be put forth by um, those who are maybe in favor of, you know, Trump's attempt to abolish DACA. Um, what are what are some of these proposals and how might we want to address them? I think one of the big questions, and I think this is, we'll eventually have to unpack this. One of the big questions is, even though I favor the DACA decision, 
is the Supreme Court the best place for those decisions to to live, so to speak? Hmm. And I think in some ways, if you're a good Democrat or a good Republican, you should be questioning whether executive orders and Supreme Court decisions are the way we should be moving forward for governance in this country. Because if if SCOTUS decisions or, or for that matter, executive orders become the martial law, so to speak, of the land of how we enact change, then what's to prevent every president from just repealing the previous decision right. or, or enacting a new executive order? Exactly. And so t- take Obama, for example, he kept getting stifled by Republicans. So he put out a bunch of executive orders and then Trump just, just uh, repealed them. And Democrats were happy when he did it. And then they freaked out when Trump repealed them. And, and my bigger question is, should they have happened in the first place? Is that the way we want to do governance? And what type of precedent are we setting where executive orders or the Supreme Court tells local level governments how they should be doing business? And I know that's a larger can of worms, but I mean, I think it's an important thing for the precedent that's been set here. Do you think, John uh, Garcia, do you think that leads to like a fundamental breakdown of bipartisanship, bipartisanship efforts? that leads to this? Because I think like when we go back to um, the Obama administration, there was very much a hardline defense from from the Republican Party. And now we see the inverted sense, right? Where mm. Democrats are being pretty resistant against you know the, the Trump administration. So I wonder like, just in your thoughts, like is there more of a, a bipartisan kind of dissolving that needs to be remedied first before we can even get to the question of executive orders and, and, and the Supreme Court's role in, in this process? Well, that's a great question, Daniel. There's a change that clearly happens in the 1960s with certain forms of, of politics and nationalism as that's tied to Christian values. And then that continues to grow into the 70s and the 80s. And as the divide grows larger and larger, your question is super poignant because there was a point where whether you were Democrat or Republican, you could still sit at the same table and converse and talk about common ground. We are now at a place in society, and I think both parties are guilty of this, where we cannot sit at a table or at a computer like we are doing now and have conversations and have differences of opinion. And I honestly don't know how we move forward with any sense of bipartisanship if we are so far removed in terms of our worldviews, in terms of how we understand and enact change, the idea of like making America great again means one thing to one person and another thing to another person. And I'm not even talking about like the breakdown of language. I'm just saying there, what's at stake here is a fundamental philosophical understanding of what makes America great in the first place. Mm-hmm. And part of that trickles down to how we do politics, how we do social welfare, civil society, etc. And so when one side is calling for the defunding of the police and the other side is calling for a greater military, part of that is just like epistemic differences in how we're understanding what's best for the world. I, I honestly don't know how we fix that. <laughs> right. From a historical perspective, part of, I think, the crisis of identity, if you will, is discerning what the original intentions was of the framers when Mm. they first ideated how the American project should work. And so let me give you a practical example. When we look at the 13th Amendment and as it relates to slavery and all that, if that gets extrapolated to talk about 
civil rights on a much grander scale and we redefine what civil rights means, then that ends up getting applied to like LGBTQ people, et cetera. But that in part is getting into the phenomenology, if you will, of what the framers were intending when they wrote that. Scalia would adamantly oppose that rewriting because Scalia does not see the 13th Amendment or the Constitution, as it were, as a living organic document. Whereas there are a number of people, especially those in Scotus right now, that are understanding the nature of, of government, so to speak, and also the Constitution as a living organic document. And if it's living and organic, then it always has to be contextualized for new generations. It's almost point for point what Obama said when they were talking about some of the things when he was in office. I think it's a good point because, man, I, I don't know that conservative deep down inside of me says it's not a living document, but but uh, the other part of me is like, it has to be organic because it was written in a particular location in a time and a space that could not foresee all the circumstances that this could apply to. But I think that even that is like part of why we are in trouble as a society is because we are attempting to discern what the American project is and what that means for our liberties moving forward. Yeah. So let's talk about some ways uh, that might be helpful for us to think about, you know, being Christians in this, you know, publicly politically divided space of partisanship and these sorts of things. How do we want to think Christianly and live in the light of this sort of a situation? I do. I do love Kuiper's vision. He's operating in a unique context in the Netherlands. But I do love his vision for pluralism as he upholds lots of people with different ideas in, in the public space. And I think there's something important to be said about that, because if we believe that Christian virtues and the Christian worldview in a larger sense reign supreme, then we should allow competing views in the marketplace to compete. And we should allow the Christian worldview to speak for itself. I, I think that's, for me, that's where I want to land ultimately at the end of the day. I'm a very good student of Bavink, and so my epistemology is grounded in the revelation that we find in Scripture, the person work in Jesus Christ. And because of that, my Reformed epistemology really allows me to operate in different places. Gray would be super happy of me to say that, to use was, all of these tools. <laughs> I was just going to ask if, if you've been chatting with Gray about some of this stuff. <laughs> Gray, Gray and I have been talking for years, so I probably... Uh, have been more formed by him than he by me. But just, you know, Bobby until just that whole line of thinking, Kuiper, the Dutch Reform tradition is just, I think, a super, super helpful place. A funny thing, I don't want to get uber detracted but from what we're talking about, but I have found that having a distinctly Christian worldview with respect to epistemology, reformed not in the Planaga sense, but reformed in like the Bobby sense, I have found that I am able to enter into secular spaces like USC or you know, big conferences. And if we are committed to true liberalism and that we're allowing the competing marketplace of ideas to coexist, then my epistemology is just as valid as the next person. So I don't even bother with evidentialism because I find that everybody is bringing their own baggage and presuppositions into the conversation. But where I think this is helpful with respect to our conversation is that if we are letting the Christian worldview and the Christian values that we find in scripture, if we are letting those live and breathe in society, then that should affect our local government, that should affect government at the national level. And if there was even like agreement that the Christian worldview should reign supreme, 
then I think we wouldn't be so worried about the competing worldviews because we would find that the Christian worldview is so much more satisfying just for human flourishing, thriving, things like that. I, I just think the Christian worldview holds the answers to these things. John, I think that's I think that's a very proper point about epistemology and I think just the world of ideas, be able to kind of think about those alongside one another. It's great insight. And I think gives us perspective on how do we see the better good of a democracy also with our Christian lens uh, in life. All right. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, obviously a lot to think about. And of course, as we, you know, discuss this idea of, you know, sort of being Christian and having a particular and a distinct Christian epistemology in the marketplace of ideas, of course, there's going to be ongoing tensions about, you know, what does that look like in terms of policy? And, and gets it gets tricky and difficult as we, you know, try to pursue what that might look like. But of course, you know, in all things charity, and hopefully that as we have these difficult conversations about very big, important issues that we can begin to sort of revisit some of those earlier, perhaps this is overly nostalgic, but ways uh, in which we could, you know, come to the same table and have these important conversations and, you know, be Christian brothers and sisters and, and these sorts of things, even if we are sitting on other sides of the aisle, for example. And so I hope that as we reclaim more of that sort of Christian vision of being, you know, thinking distinctly Christian that might actually be a helpful way forward, even if we do persist in not exactly seeing eye to eye on how that should be implemented in society with particular policies. But I, I think, of course, a posture of love towards one another and the people that he's called us to love, I think, is a, a helpful way forward. And as, as we've you know discussed this issue of immigration, really benefited from your insight, John, and, and appreciate having you on. And thank you both, Daniel, as well, for, for this wonderful conversation. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Thank you both. like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.